I invite you to join me in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking this morning at Philippians 1, verses, uh, <laughs> Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. There we go. And if you have your Bible with you or your Bible app with you, I'd love for you to join me there. And also, like we talked about last week, I'd love for you to keep the Bible open. Paul's writing is so beautiful. There is so much woven into everything he says. It's just a help to have it in front of you as we make our way through this beautiful book. Last week, we began our three-month consideration of Paul's love letter to the Christians in Philippi. And this week, Paul provides perspective on his current life situation. And what he shares is surprising. Let's listen in, starting in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and that everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Please pray with me. Lord God, we are so thankful to be gathered together in this space. And as we just sang, we are so thankful that you are the way maker, that your presence is at work in this world, and that you are present here in this space with us. And so even in the midst of our singing and praying, as we turn our attention now to your scripture, we ask that you'd be involved in this as well. Give us eyes to see just what you want us to see in this text. Give us hearts that are soft and ready to receive what you choose to reveal. And give us conviction that's strong so we can apply what we see and what we understand to the way we live every day. I pray all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our verses today begin with a personal update in verses 12 to 14. And it's clear that the church in Philippi have sent one of their own, a man named Epaphroditus, to Paul with financial assistance. It seems their hope was that when he returned a letter back to them, he would provide news of what he's up to, a personal update of how he's feeling. And yet Paul provides very little personal detail. He's much more concerned with the gospel's progress. And when Paul says gospel's progress, he talks a lot about that in this passage. He's talking about the message of Christ, the fullness of it, the kingdom of God, the way we are to live, the way we have forgiveness of sins, the body that we are called to be a part of it. All of that is encompassed in this term gospel. So gospel's progress is how far has that message reached into the world? How many have had the chance to respond to it? He says in his response to them, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And what has happened to Paul is that he's been imprisoned. He is in chains. He is 
powerless, and yet for some reason, extremely confident. Why? Well, it's all served to advance the gospel, says Paul. His chains. The fact that he's right now in prison, he says, has all served to advance the gospel. How can that be? Well, the definition of advance is headway in spite of opposition. And by this definition, there are two ways that Paul's circumstances have advanced the gospel. First of all, everyone, including the whole palace guard, knows that Paul is there in prison because of Christ. Paul could be sitting in a cell, moping over his circumstances, feeling as if all of this is defeated, including the progress of the gospel of Christ, and yet instead, he recognizes that everyone knows why he's there, and there's victory in that. Paul turns what could be prison dejection into prison ministry and is using his circumstances to help the gospel message go forth. That's the first way that this has served to advance the gospel. Secondly, other Christians have been encouraged and emboldened by Paul's example. He is seeing that it makes a difference. Far from shying away from doing things because this might happen to them, this has emboldened them to share the gospel all the more, to get the message out to people who need to hear it. There are mixed motives at work, though. Paul highlights this in verses 15 to 18. These believers who have been emboldened to share the gospel don't always have the best motives. Some, Paul says, are driven by selfish ambition stirring up trouble, hoping to cause Paul harm. Others, Paul says, are driven by love and goodwill. They know Paul is wrongly imprisoned, and seeing this happen in a wholesome way invites them and encourages them to be all the more bold in the way that they witness for the gospel. We see these same kind of mixed motives in our world today, don't we? When it comes to the church, There are people who are involved in ministry, involved in in, uh, all that the church does in this world in order to become rich, in order to become famous, in order to become powerful. We see those people all around us, and at times we in the church feel embarrassed that they are a part of the same church that we are. Do they know the same God that we know? Because we watch these behaviors that seem so far off track. And yet there are others uh, ministering in corners, undiscovered, with no false motives and and no need for the money and for the fame and for the power, and they are the inspiration for us. We see all of these same types of ministries happening in the world around us. But in the midst of our encouragement over these and discouragement over these, we can join Paul with his amazing perspective. Amazingly, Paul asks, what do their motives matter? Either way, he says, People encounter Jesus. And Paul doesn't just tolerate their ill motives. He rejoices in what they are busy doing. Paul becomes an incredibly selfless example of what it looks like to put Christ first. In fact, Paul is actually following his own advice. There's a really interesting scene that takes place in the book of 1 Corinthians where the believers in Corinth had become so fixated 
on their own rights, that they were suing one another constantly in the courts, and it was beginning to make them look terrible to the city around them, and it was beginning to make the church and Christ himself look terrible. And Paul finally in 1 Corinthians 6-7 says to those believers, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Why not set down your rights, he says, so that we do not make the name of Christ look this way in the world? Here, Paul follows his own advice in such a powerful way. He believes so strongly in the power of Jesus' message moving into the world that he actually views himself and his rights as expendable. In essence, in these verses, Paul teaches us to be stewards of our chains. Our struggles, our hardships, our suffering, these are our chains. And our chains might just serve to advance the gospel. Now we have to be really careful here. I think at times this is where the church missteps because we can see that something powerful happens when people struggle and when they suffer that God can do tremendous things through it but we have to be really careful in the way that we handle that and the way we handle the people around us who are suffering so that we don't become trite so we don't become simplistic so we don't just say oh God's going to do something great with it rather than sitting with and dwelling with those who suffer and seeing that the pain is very real and the darkness is incredibly black and dark We need to make sure not to become simplistic in this, but at the same time, not belittling suffering. We can see that powerful things take place in the midst of the lives of those who draw close to Christ. Our chains remind us that there are two kinds of ministry that all of us are called to. The first is the kind that we choose. The second is the kind that chooses us. Whenever I come to this passage, uh, it makes me think of the faithfulness of a man named Gerald Sitzer. Gerald Sitzer was a professor at Whitworth College. He was a devout follower of Christ. He was early in his career. Everything was moving along just right, enjoying a wonderful marriage to his wife. And they had four young children They were near to Christ. They walked after Christ. He taught at a Christian institution. All of this was going wonderfully when one weekend, he and his family decided to take a field trip together. They all piled into their minivan. He, his wife, all four kids, and his mother, who was in town visiting as well. Their destination was a local Native American reservation. The children were studying this in school, and they wanted their children to be there, to soak up what that beautiful culture was like, to experience it for themselves. And so they spent all day together as a family, observing and, and being a part of these beautiful ceremonies and celebrations. When everyone was worn out at the end of the day, all of them piled back into the minivan, and they made their way home. And yet on their way home, they were hit head-on by another vehicle moving at 65 miles an hour. It was a drunken driver who had crossed across the center line and there was nothing to be done to avoid the accident. Later, Gerald Sitzer would tell the story of coming to and crawling out of the van, what was left of the van, and tragically having to witness the death of his 
wife, of his four-year-old daughter, and of his mother on the side of the road while they awaited medical attention. The grief that he was plummeted into seemed never-ending. All he saw and experienced was blackness. How could God let this happen to he and his family? What would he ever do next? How would he navigate another day? And yet, even in the midst of his own personal grief and struggle, realizing he still had three young children that he needed to parent all on his own. In his desperation to figure out how to handle this, all of this grief that was just suffocating for him, he turned to the simple discipline of journaling, of writing out every single day, sometimes multiple times a day, all of the emotions he was experiencing, every twist and turn, every high and low, every angry accusation against God, every sorrowful cry. He wrote all of these things down in his journal. And the days turned into weeks, and the weeks turned into months. And he describes after the fact that finally something began to shift and change in him. He began to realize that rather than running from the darkness of his grief, he needed to actually push through it with the help of Christ to reach the light on the other side. And after months of this journaling and the beginnings of healing inside of him, he began to experience a bit of God's peace. Not understanding about why this had happened, but just the sense that God had not abandoned him, that God was with him, and that God would stay with him in the midst of this process. And as he began to share this shift inside of him with his closest friends, he also began to share excerpts of what he'd written in this journal, a journal that was only meant for him. It was his lifeline. It was the only way he would make it through this darkness. But as he shared these excerpts with his friends and his colleagues, they implored him, you have to share this with the world. You have to tell your story. People need to know what you have experienced and the way that God has carried you through this. And after much deliberation, Gerald finally published his journal. He entitled this journal, A Grace Disguised. And it is one of the most powerful books I've ever read in my life. When I think about chains, and when I think about suffering, and the way that God can use the suffering in our life to transform, encourage um, save the people around us. Think of Gerald and his selfless example. The faithful steward he was of his chains. And there's nothing trite or simplistic about what he shares. He just shares who he is and how he experiences God. And it's amazing how God can grab hold of that and use that to transform the world around him. Gerald lives with the same perspective as the Apostle Paul, and he inspires me. And so I think when we come to this Philippians text, and remember this is a book of joy, <laughs> we realize that joy can triumph in the midst of struggle. 
in the midst of heartache, in the midst of grief, because our God is a God of joy. And so as we look at this passage, the questions we should ask ourselves, can we draw inspiration from the Apostle Paul? who preaches this selfless joy from a prison cell? Can we draw inspiration from Gerald Sitzer, who emerges from an impossibly dark circumstance to preach hope and joy as a result? Can we learn from the inspiration of those around us, those in our lives, who have done the same or who are in the midst of it now? Can we be inspired by these who, because of their chains, are seeing hope? seeing grace at work in their lives in the world. Can we speak even more boldly and more compassionately about God's truth because of these who are in our lives? And can we trust that God's working something beautiful out of our own chains, our own struggles, and our own trials? It's a step of faith. But there are people all around us who are doing just this. And God calls us to be as open as possible to seeing all that we experience in this world, all of the highs, all of the lows, everything in between, as experiences that are infused by Him and by His power. And when we have eyes to see that God is at work in these ways, we can continue to follow after Sometimes pressing through that darkness to light. Other times simply inviting others to join us in the journey so that we all can finally rest in the peace of Christ and the joy that God can bring to anything we face in this world. This is what we are called to in this beautiful book and in these beautiful examples. Let's pray together. Lord God, to to be overly simplistic, to be trite in the face of anyone's suffering would be criminal in the face of the hope that your gospel brings. And so guard us against ever communicating in that way, ever belittling anything that anyone is up against. I pray for all of these who sit in this building today and all that they are up against, whatever chains might be a part of their existence today, whatever may have happened in the past, whatever they fear as they peer into the future, that you would steady us, that you'd fill us with your eternal perspective, that you would guard us by your peace that you would inspire us by one another, that you would enfold us with the community that surrounds us. We trust in you, and we desire to see the hope of your gospel not only forwarded in this world, but come to full bloom in each of our own lives. I pray all of these things now in the name of Christ. Amen.